0: Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist. Uh, uh, Today I'm here with Ben Sessa, MD, who's a medical doctor, uh, child psychiatrist, uh, who also uh, specializes in MDMA therapy for healing PTSD and trauma. He's spoken on TED Talks and uh, has written multiple books, uh, one that I randomly came into contact with right after watching his video, uh, To Fathom Hell or To Soar Angelic. Uh, I never did see the book, but somebody was standing in the bookstore as Synchronicity would have it. And I go, yeah, do you have any books by Ben Sessa? And the guy goes, to fathom hell or sore angelic? Just a rant, I mean, in a Hawaii bookstore, he was the <laughs> only person in it, and somebody had just given it to him, and he's like, man, I wish I would have had it with me, I'd give it to you. It was a really cool book. And uh, so here I'm sitting with uh, Ben Sessa. Uh, how are you, Ben? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me along.
1: I feel like a small part of me is in Hawaii right now, which is great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I have Madeline here with me today, too, because she's been with me through a a deep healing journey. Uh, And I think one of the major uh, uh, liminal points was coming across a YouTube video while waiting to get a massage, and I came across Ben Sessa's uh, YouTube video uh, called uh, uh, Is MDMA... Uh, psychiatry's antibiotic, Uh, people used to suffer. Can you speak to what that means? Uh, What do you mean by is MDMA psychiatry's antibiotic? Okay.
1: Uh, It's a very long answer because that, that answer to that question forms the whole basis of the whole talk, that TED Talk. But in a nutshell, what it is highlighting is that a lot of the treatments we use in psychiatry are not curative; they don't kill the bug that's causing the problem. Um, and if you take illnesses like uh, depression and anxiety disorder, and most addictions, and certainly post-traumatic stress disorder, the the cause, the root cause of it, is trauma, often early childhood trauma. Um, and the way we treat it is we, we without, without psychedelics or MDMA, we, we give these sticking plaster type treatments like SSRIs and antidepressants. We paper over the cracks that treat the symptoms of the disorder, but not the cause. And <clears throat> so I make the analogy that if you have an infection due to a bug, a microorganism, you can take a drug like aspirin or paracetamol or ibuprofen to, to heal your temperature, which is one of the symptoms of the infection, but that doesn't actually kill the bug, the infection, because those aren't antibiotics. Whereas MDMA and the psychedelic drugs, are they're more like taking an antibiotic. They actually get to the heart of the
0: problem. Or in the spiritual realm, you could say they the medicine could exercise out the demon or the complex mm-hmm. or the trauma out of, out of the psyche. Yeah. A, yeah. A- that, that's
1: a, that's another way of looking at it, isn't it? I think it, what it comes down to also is, you know, why are so many mental illnesses chronic uh, or lifelong? Why, why do they have to be long? And as I uh, highlight in some of my talks, I think within the, within the field of psychiatry, we have become learned helpless. We, as psychiatrists, and, and patients as well, if you've had a severe childhood abusive maltreatment experience, and you go into your teens and then your 20s with this head full of trauma and pain, both you and your psychiatrist kind of shrug their shoulders and admit yeah, you're probably screwed for life, to be honest. Hate to admit it, but that's the case. And we all just accept that as if that's a given um, that, you know, a severely traumatic childhood means you're going to be screwed for life and tough, just get over it. I don't think it should be like that. And I don't think we should think like that, uh, either as patients or, or doctors. But the whole per- profession, is pervaded by that narrative that, you know, you just can't undo some things. You've got them for life. And I think the whole maintenance therapy with with SSRIs and the way the pharma industry responds to that perpetuates and reinforces that narrative. And I truly believe it doesn't have to be like that. I believe you can be cured from mental illnesses. And we don't use the cure word very often in psychiatry.
0: Yeah, I don't think a lot of people understand this. Um, I myself went into the psychiatrist at one point when I had stopped eating and was drinking solely Jaegermeister and Red Bull and smoking cigarettes and urinating into bottles and pouring them out my window in Salt Lake City uh, after a company I had went from 500 uh, independent contractors and employees down to almost none. And I was running out of money and my car, my BMW M5 is getting repossessed and I, I couldn't keep the sham going and mask my trauma anymore. I didn't even know, like I thought PTSD was, you had to go to the military. I didn't know like, you know, childhood trauma or even what that was like, like my life was childhood trauma. Like I didn't know like everyone around me was mired in it. Uh, you know, I grew up in the projects. Uh, and, uh, I guess people don't understand that how unusual it is to use the cure word for a mental illness. I remember I went to a psychiatrist finally, because I was at the point of death. And a friend of mine who was diagnosed bipolar said, you know, you should go see my psychiatrist. They could help. And I'm like, I don't care. I hope I die. Well, if you hope you die and it doesn't matter, then what do you have to lose? And I said, well, I guess you're right. Okay, that that's rational. So thankfully, my rational mind brought me in there. The sad thing is, is the minute I walk in, I fill out a form and she goes, You're bipolar, you have ADD. You know, she's pointing to all my systems. I had panic attacks. I ran up like almost $20,000 in medical bills from panic attacks from the age of 18 onward. I would think I was dying, I'd freeze, I'd come in and out of consciousness. Uh, And so she's like, labels all this. I found ways to mask all this. Like, I'd drink alcohol and I wouldn't have panic attacks. Uh, I would take opiates and I wouldn't have night terrors where I'd wake up feeling like I'm having a heart attack with my body stuck in sleep paralysis repeatedly, sometimes 20, 30 times in one night. Imagine how frightening that is. Uh, But all of these things were masking a, a deeper trauma. And, you know, I went in there and they gave me all these pills and I became a walking zombie for a few years. And it was one day I remember like I'd forgotten to take Lamactyl and I would come out of a trance almost, like it was like my awareness re-entered my body. I'm like, where am I? Who am I? It was like my soul like re-emerged into my. Body. It was a freaky feeling, and I'm like, holy shit! Like, where did I go? And uh, the medicine did save my life because at that time, had I not got onto that, I think I was, I think I was close to the end there. Uh, so there wasn't. It's not all bad that there, there was a pharmaceutical solution to it, but I think that that's a temporary. It's a lifeboat. You don't just get off the Titanic onto a lifeboat because you hit an iceberg and just indefinitely live on a lifeboat. Like it's gotta, there's an initiation I think that needs to take place. And for me, that initiation began with your YouTube video, Ted Talk, and which led me to take take MDMA, to seek out a psychiatrist, which I couldn't find anyone that actually led these journeys. He read up on the maps protocol and then led me through this. He had never done that before. And uh, that experience, which I'll go into here in a minute, uh, provided for me something that I had never known could exist. I heard people refer to like, you know, oh, it's an open heart feeling or love or you know, oh, you know, I felt really connected. I heard all these words and I thought I knew what they meant, but it wasn't until I had, I had went through MDMA therapy that I actually experienced that. It's like I had been navigating to some abstract idea of love that uh, I had never myself felt. As a matter of fact, the feeling that came on when the medicine began to take take over my being uh, was a feeling of annihilation and a feeling like I was about to die. That's what my mind told me. You're about to die. You're about to be annihilated and fall into nothing. And I was going through a panic attack. My whole body was seizuring and shivering and freezing cold. My mouth was chattering. and uh, And I was actually afraid to feel this love. Even as I say it, my my hair standing on end, and uh, Madeline could probably speak a little bit to that. I'm heard. I'm, I'm I'm guessing you've heard what I'm saying before, right? Not from you, but from <laughs> yeah. many people. Yeah. So, uh, so Ben, if there is such a cure for all of these ailments that are causing suicides. I mean, now youth suicide is higher than it's ever been before. And this isn't just unique to the United States. It's everywhere in the world. Indian farmers are like taking, you know, uh, you know, Chemicals that they farm with to kill themselves children that are trying to exceed in the economic world that the West is taking over and they feel too much shame because their family expects them to achieve a lot or walking in front of trains. I mean, these are psychological conditions of depression. People are completely helpless. You've got uh, Jordan Peterson just recently. They find out he's taking opiates every day uh, going through rehabilitation. I mean, people are suffering uh, and there's apparently some solutions with psychedelics and things like MDMA. Why are we not hearing this? Why is this, why are people's doctors and psychiatrists not telling them? Why are their therapists not saying, hey, there's a a couple, you could go through this experience and actually be initiated out of your suffering, or healed is another word, and uh, not plagued by these conditions anymore? Why are we not hearing that?
1: Well, the the simple answer as to why one's doctor is not recommending it is because these drugs are not yet licensed so these are not medical drugs yet um there's a huge amount of research going on well actually feels like a huge amount of research from where i've been for the last 10 to 15 years in the field but actually in reality there's not that many studies going on it's still very small um So the reason you don't hear this from your family doctor is because they don't exist yet as medical treatments. They only exist in the field of research. We are moving towards the day when you will go into your family doctor and they can look down their list of recommended treatments. And among the current ones we have, they will also say, "Oh, and we have psilocybin therapy, we have MDMA therapy, we have LSD therapy, we have ibogaine therapy." So. yeah, the reason it's not out there being recommended is because there's no mechanism at the moment to take these, unless you are lucky enough to be one of the tiny handful of people involved in a research study, or unless you have them underground. And of course, underground therapy is uh, everywhere and accessible um, for those people who are prepared to break the law. Um Unfortunately, most people are not prepared to break the law. Most of my patients um, wouldn't um, accept uh, if I said, well, look, you can go and see my friend in Glastonbury who will do this for you um, under, under the radar. Um, that's not good enough for most patients. They want, to, they want to have treatments that are official, licensed, evidence-based treatments. And fair enough. So that's why we're doing what we're doing and it's taken a very long time, and we are <clears throat> uh, extremely close now. Very exciting that we are within a couple of years away from seeing MDMA as a licensed, approved prove medicine, um, which can be used above ground, not underground. And that's going to be tremendous, and it's going to open up the accessibility to these medicines for many hundreds of thousands of people who currently can't and won't access them in the illegal way. So um, it's a really exciting time that we're moving towards that position. But I, I very much share your frustration that you know why can't we just be doing this now? Um, I guess we, we just have to jump through the hoops to get it official. Um, it's gonna be far more beneficial for far more people to get this approved fully.
0: I mean, I, I barely made it, Ben. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was doing oxycodone. At one point, I was taking oxycodone, which I didn't... I, I, I found out about this because I had to have my nose reconstructed and my teeth have been broken from growing up in the hood and having them knocked out and broken. And uh, my jaw has been broken, so I have a lot of pain. And I found when I took that, it didn't just kill my physical pain. It killed all pain. And I was able to think clearly for the first time. It seemed like a miracle drug. I remember thinking it's like a limitless pill. I was always running companies like sober or mildly drunk. Uh, but once I had that, I'm like, wow, I don't have to drink. I don't have to do all these things, but it moved to a point where I, I in order for me to keep that going, I had to take opiates, I, you know, oxycodone, Xanax, Ambien to sleep. I would drink alcohol throughout the day. <laughs> I'd smoke cigarettes. I drink caffeine. Cause like I was so tired sometimes even cocaine just i had to like i was a walking pharmacy and from what i understand a lot of these things could kill you if you combine them all but somehow i've made it through that i mean i'd blacked out choking on my own vomit before and thrown into a shower i know this is pretty intense for some people and i'm speaking to this because of the degree of suffering some people experience i don't think people understand that when you are dealing with trauma, it is absolutely miserable. It's not some like psychosomatic thing in the sense that they're just making it up and they could just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and just be totally fine. As a matter of fact, the added shame that you can't just snap out of it, you can't go to Tony Robbins and just make your move and say an incantation and just continue on past it. It works temporarily maybe, but eventually you're right back in that same web and that spider of trauma comes down the web feeling you pulling on the tangles and continues to eat at your soul. Um, and I think I really want to, um, you know, I think you described that really well.
1: Um, and this is especially the case for childhood trauma. And it's interesting what you said earlier that you'd associated post-traumatic stress disorder as only combat PTSD. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. I've been working with trauma for 20 years, PTSD for 20 years. I think in my entire 20 years history, working with PTSD, I've worked with 10 vets. You know, I've worked with 1,000 patients, 10 of whom are combat PTSD. Um, the the whole work with MAPS and PTSD, particularly in the States, has, it's interesting, it really has made people think PTSD is a combat thing. It's really not. Um, the, it's a tiny fraction of the, the global cases of PTSD are due to combat PTSD. PTSD is about being in, extremely frightening and or life-threatening situations. And that encompasses every single case of child abuse. So the vast majority of global PTSD has nothing to do with the army at all. It's to do with repeated acts of extremely frightening experiences in childhood, usually delivered by caregivers, um, which the way you describe it is really good. Um, It all comes down to attachment relationships. Um, Child psychiatrists always talk about attachment. It's a very, very powerful and important part of human psychological development. In our early years, that is where we lay down the blueprint for the psychological dynamics that then drive us for the rest of our lives. Um, What is love? What is trust? What is a friend? What is a parent? Is it okay to lie? Is it okay to cheat? Is it okay to drop litter? Is it okay to hurt people? Is it okay to do what you want to get your way? Or is it better to see how other people feel? These fundamental building blocks of the human psyche are laid down in the very early years of our life. And if you are fortunate enough to grow up in an environment where you are kissed and cuddled and played with and praised, and told that you are worthy and told that you will achieve and that you're attractive and that you're lovable and that you're going to do well, then great, good for you. If you're told that you're a useless, worthless piece of shit, that you weren't wanted, that your mum doesn't love you, your dad doesn't love you, they didn't want a boy, they wanted a girl, you're a failure, that picture you just painted is a load of crap, anyone could have done that, you're ugly, you're a slut. You deserve to be raped. It's your fault. You did this. These things become very, very stuck. And it's really hard to shake those as you grow into adulthood. And it's much easier to numb the edges with compounds that sedate you. Heroin, alcohol, um, cocaine, um, whatever you can get your hands on, because
0: it's too overwhelming to live in your head. And but I could hear somebody's voice saying, yeah, just get over it. You know, people in the past didn't have therapists and psychiatrists and MDMA, and they just got over it. They dealt with it. Yeah, they dealt with it. Uh, and um, this is Yeah, this is what I was told. And it, you know, the story that you said that like you could have added to it. Uh, that you're the Antichrist, the abomination of God, and a faggot. So, like, it sounded very similar. It was a- along those lines, and you know, yeah. given that narrative, it's almost looking at like, oh, my whole life was a compensation to those things, uh, trying to prove that they're not the case, but then becoming even more deep into because no amount of what I could do could prove to myself that I wasn't it because the voice of God, which was my parents' voices, I think, or their actions, the, with the voices that their actions implied was still echoing in my head saying, nope, you're still, that's still not enough. It's still not enough. It's, uh, and uh, and eventually the only, you hit the, the the pinnacle and the only thing you could do at that point is to numb. I think, yeah. at least that's what I noticed.
1: And I think you're right. Um, It's not as simple as just get over it because
0: these, these,
1: those experiences that then form that, that personality, they're not just beliefs or opinions. They become the very core of who you are. And You know, I say this to my patients sometimes. Um, Sometimes I'll say to them, God, I just want to shake you and tell you you're wrong about yourself. You know, you are not a useless, worthless, terrible piece of shit. You're a lovely, kind, erudite, intelligent, attractive, charming person. But there's no point in me just telling you that because you feel deep within your core that you are not. It's a bit like someone saying to me, so I I had a good experience of childhood. I had a good attachment. And I believe in I, I'm a nice person. It's a bit like someone saying to me, do you know what, Ben? Actually, you're a mean, horrible, rude, arrogant person. And nobody likes you. And the world is awful. And you can never trust people. And everyone's trying to screw you over. If someone said that to me, I wouldn't believe them. I'd be like, that's I, I don't think that's true. I think I'm okay. Yeah, what are you
0: trying to manipulate me? That's what I that's what I used to think when someone say positive things. So it, yeah. it's
1: never as simple as just tell them and they'll change. And so you're quite right, you can't just get over it because you're not asking someone just to change their opinion, like you know, who's the better guitar player, Jimi Hendrix or Eric Eric Clapton. It's not an opinion, it's a core personal felt belief about who you are as a person. And so the reason I'm attracted to psychedelics and MDMA is because of all the pharmacology I've come across in my 20 years as a psychiatrist, the, the, it's only the psychedelics and MDMA that get anywhere near tackling those core features. It's, it's the, the be- these are the best tools we have that can actually do that seemingly impossible task of undoing those fixed narratives that occur through early attachment disorder. Um, All of the other treatments, the SSRIs, the mood stabilizers, the hypnotics, um, the antipsychotics, all of these other treatments paper over the cracks and just deal with the small print. They micromanage the mood and the the daily feelings. The only pharmacology that gives us any possibility of tackling those core narratives are the psychedelics and MDMA.
2: And wasn't MDMA also uh, specifically designed and curated for therapeutic use in its early days? That's as I understand
1: it. Um, well, when it was first synthesized back in 1912, it wasn't synthesized as a psychoactive drug at all. It was synthesized mm-hmm. as a chemical precursor for a different, a different situation altogether. Um, when its psychoactivity was first discovered um, in the late 60s, And then indeed, Madeline, in in the first sort of, in the 70s and the first part of the 80s, that's when it was being used for. It was being used by psychotherapists to um, facilitate psychotherapy. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the way it works, MDMA, is quite remarkable. It selectively impairs the fear response whilst leaving the other faculties intact. And that's, a very, very specific and unique pharmacological action. There are few other drugs that do that so specifically. Um, There are many drugs that inhibit the fear response. A bottle of vodka inhibits the fear response. A bag of heroin inhibits the fear response. And that's why these drugs are popular in people with trauma, because you numb fear. But the trouble with those drugs is they're very messy drugs. They also... On a bottle of vodka or a bag of heroin, yeah, okay, you're fearless, but you can't think, you can't reflect, you can't debate, you can't remember, and you certainly wouldn't remember the next day. So they're not useful tools for psychotherapy. What's so bizarrely unique about MDMA is how it selectively inhibits fear. But the other faculties are fine. You can talk and remember and reflect and talk about your childhood, but just very cleverly the fear bit's been removed. Um, a really good anecdote, and I often share when I'm giving my talks on this, is when I was um, 18 years old in 1990, at the height of the rave scene, I was, a, I was a DJ for about 10 years in London in my 20s before I was uh, a doctor. She's a DJ too. <laughs> yeah, you're a DJ, Madeline. Yeah, okay, cool. yeah, yeah. So, so I, I came across a lot of ecstasy. And I remember age 18, we were, we'd come back after a rave and everyone was really loved up and lying there. And we were lying there going, oh, man, this is so beautiful, so beautiful. Let's, let's think of the worst thing we can imagine. And, <laughs> and one of my friends said, oh, man, let's imagine our mums dying. And we all lay there. Then we went, it's not that bad? And, <laughs> and, and, and it's weird because this is long before I knew anything about MDMA psychotherapy. But that's kind of... That's kind of what it. That's how it works. You can mm-hmm. you, on MDMA. You can go to the place that you really would normally avoid. You know, and the tra- the thing with trauma, you know, if you have experienced this childhood trauma, and in by the time you're in your twenties, thirties, forties, and you're addicted to alcohol and heroin and self harm, and you you've become an absolute expert at avoiding the index issue, you will do anything anything on earth to not think about that night when you were eight years old and your grandfather came into your bedroom. You've become an absolute expert at never going there. You reach for the bottle, you reach for the tablets, and if you go to psychotherapy, you sit there and the the therapist builds up this relationship with you and eventually they drop that question, tell me about your trauma, tell me about your rape, and you're out the door because you've become an absolute expert at never going there. And so, this is why PTSD and addictions are so difficult to treat because there's a barrier that you hit with patients where they'll talk about some stuff, but they won't talk about that. And then on MDMA, they find they can. And it's quite amazing seeing this happen before you in the MDMA therapy session, seeing patients who are sitting there saying, Oh my God, I've carried this around for 30 years. I've never mm. talked about it. But tonight, but today, I can tell you everything that happened that night in great detail. And I don't know why I can do it, but I kind of seem to have the energy and the the power to do it for this first time in my life. And that's where the breakthrough occurs. And the crucial thing is, they don't have to keep taking MDMA. They don't have to be high, they've done the work. So Mm. the MDMA has facilitated this discussion about this forbidden taboo subject that they've spent their whole life avoiding. And for the first time in their life, they can go there and do that. And it lasts, you know, the, 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 the resolutions they make, um, the new narratives they form are maintained. They don't have to keep taking the drug. So it, it's really quite remarkable seeing that in action.
2: Yeah, I think it's so important to highlight the therapy session here because you brought up the ecstasy scene and the rave and so many people that we know. Our audience
0: um, has listened, has yeah. probably done MDMA or what's called or what, ecstasy, or you know or maybe
2: a street form of MDMA in a dance scene or party scene. And I, I feel very grateful that that was never introduced into my life, and so I found MDMA through your your uh, TED talk and through the therapeutic use and seeing Zach use it and transform. Um, But when I explained the therapeutic use to people, so many people have never had this experience even though they may have taken ecstasy or MDMA many times. So I really like to highlight the deep importance of the blindfold and the going within. You know, that obviously having a therapist or a guide that's uh, just there to hold the space and to help guide the journey, Um, and then also the use of of music and a really calm, safe setting. Uh, Because I think so many people probably take MDMA in a party or festival scene, and they feel really great, and they dance, and they have an awesome time, but then um, they may not really... Uh, have the lasting effects of the therapy, right? So um, I think that's a, a very important part.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's like, I think psychedelics and MDMA can be used in different ways. They can be just good fun. They can be a cohesive experience. They can bring people together. You can have a laugh. You can dance all night and stay up and have sex and you know, party, you know, and they, they have all these roles. And I think those are fine roles. And, um, there's no reason why people shouldn't be allowed to do those things, but you're quite right, Madeline. If you're going to really utilize them therapeutically for people who are really needing them as medicines, you, you have to, it's not just the drug. You have to have the preparation sessions. You have to have the expectation correct and the intention you have to have the session guided and supported. And crucially, and this is the bit that's often missed out, um, you have to have the post drug integration. You have mm. to spend those days, weeks, and months discussing the experience and the material that came out in order to make sense of it. Um, if you cut those corners and don't do those additional things and just take the drug, at best, it just won't be particularly effective. And at worst, certainly with the classic psychedelics, it could be harmful. So there is a big difference between the way we use these drugs clinically and the way we use them recreationally. Mm -hmm.
0: So what you're saying is if somebody's had a lifetime of complex PTSD, uh, it it wouldn't be the cure to just simply go to a rave and take MDMA and uh, dance to your favorite DJ. Uh, The intention and opening the container for the space and time, the way that I've seen it for myself, because I've never done the alternative. Uh, For whatever reason, I was completely against doing MDMA. I don't know what it was, probably a deep intelligence in myself. Uh, So probably I knew that something crazy would happen, which it did. I mean, I started to like almost seizure on the ground because my muscles were releasing built up like fear response. Uh, What actually led me to take MDMA and even look into therapy, uh, because I lived in a group home when I was a kid and all that, Uh, What what led me to do it wasn't even the torture of the drug addiction and all of and and all of that. It was actually my body eventually got trapped in a fetal position where my where my my tail my my sacral like my uh, pelvis got pulled underneath and I was actually curled up in a fetal position. And I like even when I would eat like it would hurt my stomach because my muscles around my stomach were so flexed uh, and contracted. I even went to the chiropractor on a walker. Uh, and you know, they're like, we don't know what that, did you get in a car accident? What the hell happened to you? And I'm like, no, I woke up this way. And it was through, uh, finding out that there could be a psychosomatic response. There could be fear response pulling me into a ball. And essentially I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what else it could be. I've tried everything. I've tried fasting for nine days on water, drinking my own urine, going to acupuncture, chiropractic, naturopathic traditional medicine, they were like, we don't know what to do. Here's pain, you know, take painkillers. And I'm like, well, fuck, I can't do that. I took a boga to get off the painkillers. And even, even Ibogaine, uh, didn't give me that feeling of love. It did some healing where I was like able to like not be addicted to opiates anymore, but I, I still didn't feel that love connection. I don't think I had ever felt that before, or maybe I did when I was a child and it was intermixed with all sorts of weird shit. Uh, so, uh, I, I didn't even go to that love place, and still to this day, I don't cry when I see terrible things. I actually feel grief when I see something very beautiful. If I see something very pretty, like that's what brings me to tears. It isn't the the like terribleness that just makes me rage. You know, it doesn't make me feel sad. Uh, it's kind of everything is reversed in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's a long way to ask the, uh, to kind of state and confirm that. Uh, someone going to because what I could picture some people thinking is, I know people that have taken MDMA in party settings, but they're still plagued with PTSD symptoms. And, uh, and they're like, well, clearly MDMA wouldn't work for me, because I've done that.
1: Yeah. But you know, it's, um, as we said, if we're going to think of MDMA as a medical drug, then there's going to be certain protocols that make it work better than others. You know, it's a bit like saying, I don't believe in surgery because I once cut my finger with a knife and that didn't help. You know, um, the way a surgeon uses a knife is very different from the way we use a knife when we cut a loaf of bread. It doesn't mean we demonize knives and say they're all useless. Mm-hmm. So MDMA is a tool and
0: it's how we use it. Um, and it's Also, I think I picture it like a like a lens, like a telescope. And most people, when they take MDMA and they go out to a, uh, uh, they go out to a rave or a nightclub or whatever, they're pointing the telescope out of themselves, trying to pull in whatever awesome things they can and feel the most amazing feeling possible. They're not usually going, Hey, let's think about the worst thing we could possibly think of, or let me just close my eyes and, and with the intention to heal the worst things and inviting the worst things to come into awareness because the first thing that happened to me under the MDMA first thing was I thought I was being annihilated and that I was going to die and then a panic attack ensued which has happened multiple times with me throughout my life I was plagued with the damn things uh to the point where I'd have to pull over my car on the freeway thinking I'm, I'm like convulsing in a car blacking in and out you know multiple times uh not knowing why I'd be walking down a hallway I'd have a panic attack I'd be sitting in a chair, have a panic attack, I'd be walking through an office building, uh, but here's a panic attack and I was able to be with it somehow all the way through the end without taking any Xanax or alcohol or whatever.
1: Yeah. So it, and, gave uh, you that, it gave you that sort of life jacket to, to deal with the, that pain and not be overwhelmed that normally you would run away from and avoid. I think you highlight that the way that MDMA is taking recreationally it is very much about the externalization experience, and this this is interesting because if you look at the way look at the way classic psychedelics are taken recreationally, uh, LSD, magic mushrooms, the way people take those drugs recreationally is pretty similar to the way we use them clinically. You normally, when people take LSD or mushrooms, it's you know three or four close friends, you sit in the dark round a candle, listening to Pink Floyd. It's all very quiet and beautiful and you know, some people take LSD and go to a massive house party or a huge rave, but generally that's an ecstasy thing. And the way that people take classic psychedelics is this quiet, small group, sort of pseudo-clinical. Um, yeah, and then they go inside and they have this natural healing experience. Imagine a rave with 5,000 people lying on their backs in the dark with their eyes closed in silence. You know, mm-hmm. if people took ecstasy like that, I think we'd get a very different sort of rapport. So if you look at, say, psychospiritual experience or mystical experience, um, uh, the prevalence of that on MDMA, it's only about five to 10 percent of people um, first time threshold dose MDMA will report a pseudo um, uh, a mystical experience, a communion with God. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty low which is low compared to the sort of 70 to 80% on magic mushrooms or LSD. But I think in part that's the drug, but I think it's also in part the way in which it's taken. And if more people took MDMA recreationally, the way they take magic mushrooms or LSD recreationally, I think we'd see much higher levels of psychospiritual experience. So a lot of people are critical of MDMA within the psychedelic community, and they say it's not really a psychedelic, it's not a mystical experience. And I think it's maybe because they're talking about the way people take ecstasy. Um, and you're quite right. When you take MDMA and you have the intention to go inside, it is actually quite similar to a classic psychedelic experience. And certainly our work clinically, where people are in are lying in the dark with, with eye shades on, they report a lot of imagery that's very psychedelic, very much about seeing the white light and communing with the spirit and these kinds of, these kinds of narratives. So I don't think it's as dissimilar from the other psychedelics as, as, as people think, um, other than the way in which it's taken. And when you take it and go inside with that intention, that's where you have the most positive effects. The other thing you, you commented on there is this sense of love And and, and that's really, that is really quite unique to the MDMA experience. And patients will often say to me um, when they're under the influence of the drug, you know, oh, you know, Dr. Ben is—is this what love feels like? And now, and I will say, yes, you know, this experience of serenity, this peace, this being warm and contained and held, and not not fearful. But feeling empathic and feeling trusting and trusted, yes, that is what love is. And now a critic would say, that's not love. You know, this is a transient, drug-induced experience. You can't say this is the same as love. And absolutely right. Yeah, it is a transient, drug-induced experience. It's not love. But if you're a person who's never experienced that sense of peace, You know, from the day you were born, you've been bullied and pushed and hurt and humiliated. Then you've never really had that warm, gooey warmth of serenity and peace. So when you then take MDMA in a clinical setting and you ask the question, is this love? I think it's right to say to the patient, yeah, this is how it feels. And the point is, you don't have to, once you've felt it and you know what it feels like, you don't have to keep taking it. So you can give a person for the first time in their life an experience of what it feels like to have love. And yes, it's just a chemical and it will wear off. But if they've never had that experience, it's a very, very important springboard or platform from which to work out ways to get this feeling without the drug going forward.
2: Mm -hmm. It doesn't also feel it's just as transient experience, although in the moment it may be heightened and very unique and uh, kind of the opposite of what people with extreme trauma are often feeling in the sense of constant fear or depression. Um, But I think with my experience with Zach um, and being a, a witness to his first journeys and really seeing this love come through in a way that I had never seen or felt from him, him before, you know, like emanating yeah. from his body. And, um, it was really lasting, you know, it wasn't just a transient experience. And of course, that fear for all of us came up at that time. Like, is this going to go away and are you going to have to, you know, come back to this medicine again and again to get this experience and the thing it, it almost like it struck so deeply into a place where this deepest wound was being held and festering and it like it opened that up and it cleaned it brought it to the surface in order to be cleaned out over months of therapy and other work you know of like the subsequent work afterwards but the sensation of love was still there. It's almost like it planted a seed in that wound of a seed of love, you know, and the seed had to also be nurtured and grown like it couldn't just be left. And of course, there were still cycles of, uh, you know, trauma and fear and depression after that, you know, for fear of losing that mm-hmm. again. Um, but the really unique thing was that at every MDMA session, you know, after that first one got I would say almost easier and easier and different memories would come up and different layers of the trauma would come up. It was never the same memory that he was going back to. It was different every time. And then after a certain amount of sessions, there was a feeling of completion, you know, there was a journey that felt like, wow, I, I feel almost like I do in waking life, I feel like I do every day, like, what a gift, you know, this isn't so extreme and the opposite. Yeah, the so, last
0: one was like, felt almost like just a good day.
2: You know, yeah. So <laughs> it, it was really like, it was so profound for me to witness something that that really did uh, take a, you know, a growth journey rather than just like, oh, yeah, go to the extreme and then come back to reality. It's so like, you're it's you're just-
1: absolutely right. And I think it's, it's really important that we highlight this because I think some people maybe think and expect psychedelics to have this magic bullet effect.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, you take it and you're cured. And if you're, if, it, if you're not cured immediately, then they're rubbish and they don't work. Um, it is to be nurtured. It is something that you have to work on with other disciplines. You have to change your lifestyle. You have to use this as a, as a platform for, for lifestyle change and you have to nurture it. But at the same time, going back to what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the, the psychedelics and MDMA—they seem to be the best thing we have to actually tackle these very rigid narratives that form early in life. Because um, mm-hmm. what we actually do when we when we can take a psychedelic or MDMA, often people—you know—people carry around in their heads these personal narratives about themselves based upon some childhood experience, and. As I said, sometimes I just want to shake my patients and tell them they're wrong. You know, and this is one of the weird things about child abuse. If you hit a six-year-old child, they don't say what they should do, which is, don't hit me, you bastard. I'm only six. Mm
0: -hmm. Why are
1: you hitting me? You're a big grown-up adult. That's abuse. They don't say that, Mm -hmm. which is what an adult would say. They say, sorry, sorry.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it's weird Mm -hmm. you can hurt humiliate abuse a child and they apologize to you for you doing that to them
2: Mm. it's
1: the most extraordinary um Mm -hmm. bad design in, in 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 attachment but this is what happens and then they carry it all through their life they believe they've done something wrong they believe they are wrong they are soiled they are dirty it's their fault they shouldn't have behaved like that. And, and they're just wrong. This awful bastard adult should not have done that to them. It mm-hmm. wasn't their fault. And one of the things with psychedelics and MDMA is you see it, that there's a light bulb moment where they suddenly realize, oh my God, this stuff that I've carried around on my shoulders my whole life, it, it, I was wrong. It, it, it wasn't my fault. I was just a little kid. And they can see that about themselves. So it's a a mixture. I'm saying both things. In some ways, there is a sort of light bulb, sudden narrative change moment. But like you say, Madeline, it also has to be nurtured. It's not a magic bullet. You then have to use that to unpick that and unpack that and integrate that to say, right, so now we've made this realization about ourselves. Now, how do we weave this into our everyday life. So mm-hmm. that that integration is, is really important.
2: Yeah, I think it's such a deep coping mechanism to side with the perpetrator or the abuser, you know, and especially for children to say, oh, if it becomes our fault somehow, then maybe we can change our actions in the future to not have it happen. Or maybe then we can relate to our parents more, you know, it's like, oh, if it's my fault, then I can fix that. You know and i even for you know anyone that's experienced sexual abuse often they'll find some way to make it their fault in their head so then maybe they can understand how it won't happen again or they can you You know beat themselves up yeah like like it's it's more terrifying
0: if it's just happening arbitrarily and you're completely powerless it feels better if you think you caused it somehow and you could do some type of dance to stop it in the yeah, future. Yeah, it's
2: just like a ma- mental coping mechanism. And then yet I think what I also describe people with the MDMA is it's like your highest self gets to come in and look at the worst situations you've been through and really see it through this lens of compassion for yourself, for the for the abuser, for like for everyone in the situation. All of a sudden we have this veil of compassion and understanding, but most importantly for yourself as a, as a victim, or someone that's been through yeah. something that you know maybe you had a coping mechanism designed after that and uh it really does feel like a like a permanent shift once that happens yeah. and the thing that i love about mdma also that's a little bit different than other psychedelics is that the whole experience is remembered you know like it's not like you come out of the journey and you need someone to tell you what happened what did i say yeah, yeah. What, what did i say did i record it like I need to remember this. It's it's all a cognitive experience. It's you know, it's just also with the use of this medicine.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Oh. It's the clarity of it um mm-hmm. that, that makes it so important. Mm-hmm. I wanna to touch on something that's like really alive in me right now, which is in my situation, uh my family and everybody I knew were mired in in trauma. You know, my mother went through unspeakable trauma my father god only knows what the hell he went through at one time you know like I, you know my grandmother grew up in a russian monastery trying to escape you know the 1917 revolution in russia and like you know they saw people getting shot in the head right out in front of them you know i mean there's there some pundits that believe that uh, people that have survived World War One and World War II have more trauma than anyone in the history of human existence, even more than when people were being human sacrificed or whatever, because they got, came close to death and they were constantly fearing death and they were like on the brink, like fighting their own neighbors and fighting their own family members and you know, all sorts of crazy things, having to denounce their religion, losing their indigeneity, becoming orphans of a place. I mean, all the all sorts of things. So like, I felt like even with MDMA, even now, still to this day, like a lot of terrible things happened to me. But then I like, I feel really bad for, you know, my family and for, you know, those around me that did bad shit to me. You know, when I was really young, I was the one white kid running around and you know, like bad shit happened. I lived in a group home, you know, bad shit happened to me there too. Bad shit happened to other people there also that I witnessed. And, uh, and uh, I guess kind of where I'm at is I'm at the point now where I'm trying to, how do, how do we make sense of that? And, you know, how does one not blame them? You know, like, where does this trauma begin? And you know, what does one do? And in this desperation to really help my family, I took an MDMA session with my mom. Like she didn't take it, I did. And Madeline took it in in Kauai where I was conceived on my birthday this last year. And it was a very mystical, kind of almost like exorcism looking experience. It was, you know, quite terrifying for me. And uh, I don't know if that was the most wise decision or or what, but uh, I'm still trying to shake off that experience um for myself i mean i you know just i'll spare the details but it was unlike any other mdma therapy session i did and we did it with the intention of healing ancestral trauma and uh, i really wish i would have had a guide and i really wish i wouldn't have gone at that on my own and uh i really love my mother and i wanted to help her and uh and i really wanted to heal that you know relationship and you know my family has been passing down This terrible feud, uh, and you know, I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. Kind Kind of like like maybe you could. I think
1: that it's MDMA. So before before MDMA was marketed as ecstasy, it was called empathy, Um, Mm. and that's how the therapists would refer to it as empathy. Um, And and then somebody came up with the idea that ecstasy would sell better, so it (laughs) kind of got rebranded as ecstasy. So one of the one of the core features is this. This ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and to feel their pain. And Mm -hmm. through doing that, also feel your own pain and have forgiveness for yourself as well as for them. I remember during my MDMA training with Max, we saw a video um, of a a lady undergoing um, MDMA therapy who'd been sexually abused by her father. And she was saying during the session, she was saying, "I, I don't think I can forgive him or condone him for what he did to me but he must have been in a really bad place to do that to his 6-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. Now, what an amazing admission of empathy. You know, you can go to traditional therapy for 20 years before you say something like that
0: mm-hmm. and mean it. Yeah,
1: and mean it. And on MDMA, it's almost it's almost a sort of Christian type thing of forgiveness, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness of someone for doing the most heinous things to you and although mm-hmm. Uh, people find it very hard to do that. I think there's a lot to be said that a great deal of healing can come from forgiveness, if you like, or empathy, at least, for someone who has wronged you. Because in doing that, you a weight is lifted off your shoulders. Um, and it's love, really. That's what it is. It's love and it's compassion for people, even if they don't do all the right things they ought to do. And so the MDMA has this effect of compassion for others, which allows you to look at those childhood experiences in a new light, but also compassion for yourself. And, and my patients say this all the time. I, I, I now feel I can love myself. I had a patient not so long ago and I was saying to him, you know, do you love yourself? And he laughed and he went, no, of course I don't love myself. You know, <laughs> you know he, says, he says that's what we say when we insult people. Like, look at that bloke over there. He really loves himself. Like it's a bad thing, and I'm I'm like, I love myself. I'm great. I think I'm amazing. I'm a lovely, warm, great person. I'm a really good person to know. You could, you really want me as your friend because I'm really lovely. And he's like, what? That's so arrogant. It's like, no, it's not arrogance. That's that's healthy. Now, I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else Mm -hmm. at all. But what I'm saying is I am very happy with myself and I love myself. And if I didn't love myself, I wouldn't be in any position to love other people. So Mm -hmm. what MDMA does, it does give you this ability to attach to other people, but also more crucially to, and you you both mentioned this, to find that part of yourself that is good and beautiful and lovely. It's the best version of yourself you can be. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to spend a bit of time with that version of yourself. Even if it is a transient drug-induced, chemical-induced experience, to spend a bit of time with that best bit of yourself is really healthy because it reminds you of what you're capable of. And this is why it's not just a transient experience. It can be a very transforming experience, and especially when it's nurtured. Mm-hmm.
0: It's like Plato in the cave allegory. Before I felt like I was in a cave, people were talking about love, and you know, in this case... To use the metaphor talking about sunshine and people and grass and uh, and I thought I knew what it meant, but i didn 't and then under under the MDMA therapy i got the chains got cut and I got pulled outside and Once I felt the warmth, I immediately felt how cold I was, and that 's where the shaking and all that but beyond that, as that began to thaw, which was terrifying, uh, I felt all of the warmth that i couldn 't feel before, and I think that was a huge gift. I want to touch, maybe finish off this uh, this Podcast episode talking about, uh, and I think a lot of people have a uh, negative understanding, especially people with a lot of trauma. They've been put through group homes. They've been put through, you know, uh, terrible situations. The group home where I went, the guy went to prison for beating and molesting a child in the group home, which we all knew was happening. I mean, we were there when, you know, the, one of the kids, I'm even picking my fingers as I'm talking about it, as I'm remembering it, uh, you know, they give up on the societal structures and they look for towards shamanism or some type of spiritual guru. And then a lot of times they get traumatized again in those situations. And I I don't want to demonize the medical profession because I think science as a, as a study of, uh, of, uh, objective truth and and the scientific method is extremely powerful and it needs to be there to anchor in these experiences for, in, 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 in a lot of ways. And I have begun to view uh not all psychologists or psychiatrists as as a shaman, but I it in, in a lot of cases I, I view uh the psychiatrists that truly do their own work and are really exploring the unknown, you know, people like the Carl Jungs of the world as a modern day shaman of the Western mind, uh, helping those that don't have primitive roots, that have that have been, you know, our narrative's a lot different, you know, as somebody that grew up in the United States or in England or wherever than, than, uh, than somebody from the Paraha or the Dagara tribe, you know? Like, the mythologies are so complex and our psyches are, you know, not that it's better or worse, it's just different. And uh, I found that some of these shamanic beliefs, they just didn't, they weren't able to captivate me in a way that could really allow for healing. It's like I ne- like the wounding existed on so many planes. So I wanted to talk, maybe have you finish off with, do you view yourself as you know, you know, a shaman-like person, somebody that uses this you know, ecstatic or mystical realm of, and mixed with science, uh, with, the, with modern technologies? Can you speak to that? Because some of these are ancient, some of these are modern technologies. I don't really subscribe to any of these points of view. I think
1: all of these things are socially constructed narratives. I think the thing that links all people, whether they're from traditional Western medicine, uh, from uh, shamanic medicine or indigenous medicine, it's about kindness and compassion and connectivity with people. And you don't have to be a doctor or a shaman or a construction worker or a politician or an artist or a dancer. We all have this capacity to be kind. And we know when we're being kind, and we know when we're not being kind, and we know when we're connecting with ourselves and others. I think that Western medicine can learn an awful lot from shamanic medicine, but similarly, there's an awful lot we can learn from Western medicine about methodology. And any good doctor, certainly any good psychiatrist or psychotherapist, has to have these qualities of, genuinely caring for their patients, genuinely approaching every clinical situation with this positive, curious regard. Um, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in my patients and I genuinely care about them. I love them. I love my patients with a true love. I want them to be well. I want to help them. But I want to see them do that work themselves. And any good doctor should be able to do that. I think that the system can make it look as if people are being uncompassionate, but it's because they're just cogs stuck in the system. I'm, I, I think, I, like you said at the beginning of this interview, you know, I don't shun all psychopharmacology by any means. I've seen life-saving treatments with medicines. There's no question of that. And I've also seen plenty of abuses through shamanism plenty of um, self-style teacher healer gurus with minimal understanding or training about people and sexual trauma, taking people in vulnerable positions with no customer services, no right to reply, no scrutiny, no supervision, no oversight, and also dogmatically holding on to their power and... um, Criticizing medical doctors because they allow themselves to be scrutinized. It's extraordinary. Um, You know, you often I'm asked at conferences because there's a very strong narrative within the psychedelic community these days coming from the shamanic community about you know the over-medicalization of psychedelics. I was asked at a conference recently, Dr. Sessa, do you worry about the over-medicalization of psychedelics? I said, I worry about the under-medicalization of psychedelics. You know, mm-hmm. the way I see it, the hippies have had 50 years to try and get psychedelics into the healing frame and they ain't done it. Mm-hmm. It took people in coats and ties and clipboards and white coats to get where we are. If we hadn't done that methodology, we wouldn't be where we are on the verge of seeing MDMA and psilocybin licensed as clinical medicines. My patients who I work with, they could not be further from the hippie subculture if they tried. The people I work with are hard, tattooed, shaven headed, lager drinking, tracksuit wearing, tough blokes. And Mm -hmm. by God, do they need MDMA and psilocybin more than anyone. And if they had to buy into, hey man, you gotta wear a rainbow t-shirt and grow dreads and we gotta listen to Indian sitar music and have incense. If they had to buy into that subculture in order to access these treatments, they ain't gonna go there. Because Mm -hmm. they don't wanna know about chakras and energy fields and stuff. They wanna know that this is approved medicine that works and it's safe and it's licensed. So. I want medicalization of psychedelics. Now in saying that, I'm not saying there is no value in shamanic use rather than saying we need to strip the shamanic aspect of psychedelics and turn them all into white coated situations. We need the doctors to come around to shamanic ways of thinking, but we have to work with the scientific paradigm we have or we ain't going to get this done. And it'll
0: they they will and people say uh, we'll be human sacrificing if we if we for, if we forget the difference between if, the um, if we balance each other if out we
1: Don't do this by working with the systems and models in place. It just ain't gonna happen And people say oh man you doctors taking away our sacred medicines Okay, fine. They will remain sacredly illegal for another
0: 50 years and that's while, while people like donald trump and Bolsonaro burn the whole earth to the ground and there's a
1: small percentage of people who don't mind breaking the law and they they and also we have to remember these are the they tend to be the white western middle classes who you know can pay five grand and go and sit in a yurt and take someone's ayahuasca but the vast majority of my patients are not They don't have access to this. They are normal people living normal lives. Why, when we do psychedelic studies, do we always have pictures of Buddha and Indian batiks on the wall? Why not um, Britney Spears or Manchester United posters? If those are the power objects that our patients bring to us, that's where we should be meeting them. We shouldn't be asking our patients to change into this hippie subculture in order to access these important medicines my patients are my priority, not the history of psychedelics that came before. These are powerful medicines and they work. And I will do everything in my power to make them accessible for public health for free for my vast majority of patients. And this is why we're working with the NHS. This is, it's, it's, people complain about the medicalization of psychedelics and say that um, it's going to make it exclusive. That's complete rubbish. It's, it's the current situation that's exclusive. If you've got 20 grand in your pocket and you can afford to fly down to Peru good good for you but most people don't this should be public health medicine it should be accessible for the vast majority of people who are not accessing it because it is very much held in this exclusive bubble of westernized trustafarians so, mm-hmm. so we, Trust- need trustafarians. <laughs> we need to, yeah, yeah, no, to no, move no. out of this and and, and I think there's there's large elements of the psychedelic community who are feeling very threatened by this. And and what I say to them is if you're one of these self-styled teacher healer gurus who refuses to have scrutiny and supervision, yet you want to work with people with sexual trauma, that that doesn't sound good to me. You know, it's free to everyone to do. We can all train in it. But it's got to become it's gotta come out of the underground and into the overground. And the only way to do that is to work with the authorities or it ain't going to happen. So I feel really strongly that we've got to to listen to the shamanic voice and we've got to listen to the indigenous voice because there's an awful lot of wealth of evidence there. But we also have to do it through the proper channels or it ain't going to happen. And I just want to see this for my patients.
0: So the last question I guess we'll finish with is how does somebody that feels deeply called To either work with this medicine to help themselves heal or somebody that feels called maybe to this vocation as a way to share their gifts with the world to become a licensed therapist working with uh, working with these medicines and therapy in order to lead people towards healing. How, do, how does one find someone to work with or how does one find a way to become licensed and, and be able to provide these much needed services?
1: It's, it's a good question that I'm asked a lot. The really simple answer is we don't quite know yet. Um, mm-hmm. At the moment, as I said, it's, although those of us in the community feel this is a great big thing, this is actually really, really small. It's, it's a tiny number of people who are actually doing this. Um, but we think it's going to be big. So when the drugs get licensed in the next few years, we think there's, and once they're available to be legally prescribed and used, we're going to have a real bottleneck because we're going to need thousands of therapists we don't have now. And there's still a lot of unanswered questions as to who can train the therapists, what qualifications you need to have, um, whether or not there'll be certain groups that hold a monopoly on that training or how open is it going to be. It's not quite clear, but it's becoming clearer as the months go on. Um, mm-hmm. So the two main groups that are working with both the, the, the approval and production and the training at the moment are MAPS, who um, are primarily associated with MDMA, and Compass Pathways, who are primarily associated with psilocybin. And both of those two groups, you can go on their websites and sign up to become a therapist. And you can undergo part of the training, um, but the full training course at the moment is only really available to those people who have a research study to do. So a tiny handful of people. So unless you're carrying out academic research, you can't really truly, truly, fully train at this stage to be an Mm -hmm. official MDMA or psilocybin therapist. But that's going to have to change. Because as I said, we're suddenly going to have these drugs available in two years, but no one's Mm -hmm. fully trained in them because the only people who could train were the ones doing the smaller bits of research before they got approved. That is going to change, and I guess watch this space. I think in the meantime, it's a really important point, actually. In my opinion, the people who are going to make the best psychedelic therapists are people who have clinical understanding and training. Now, by clinical, it doesn't just mean a doctor. So we're talking doctors, nurses, psychologists, clinical psychologists, psychotherapists, counsellors, um, Alternative therapists, social workers, physiotherapists, occupational therapists—all of those disciplines are different, but they're all linked by the patient clinician, the, the clinician-patient relationship. You're, you're used to working with people in a supervised way with consent and confidentiality and understanding of safeguarding and boundaries and those kinds of things so that kind of training sets you up well to become a psychedelic therapist in my opinion i get a lot of people who contact me and they go oh ben i want to i want to be a psychedelic therapist and i say why and they say cuz i love taking lsd and it's like well to me that's not really the best qualifications for being a psychedelic therapist what you should say is because i love working with traumatized people um, so, to have years and years of experience working with trauma, depression, pain, abuse, um, suicide, years and years of working with those kinds of conditions, and then you go on to psychedelics. Because, in, in my opinion, psychedelic therapy is, is a highly specialized form of psychotherapy. So, it's better to go in as the psychotherapist and then add psychedelics later than.
0: I want to be a psychedelic therapist because I love psychedelics. I think mm-hmm. you've got to love psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. I think it's an economic problem. People want to find a way to do what they love and be able to earn a livelihood. And so they turn, I love psychedelics into, I want to be a psychedelic therapist. When in reality they love psychedelics and they like, I don't know, farming and farming doesn't yeah. pay anything. So they're like, well, what is it that I could do? Well, I'm going to make psychedelics with all oh, that therapy thing. But You know, it's so often people mix up the thing, you know, mix up elements for economic reasons. And I think that's a...
1: So when they say, I want to be a psychedelic therapist because I like psychedelics, we should turn that around. You should be a psychedelic therapist because you like therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? So be a good psychotherapist first. Mm -hmm. But as I said, there are many ways of being a psychotherapist, and that includes physiotherapy, occupational therapy, social work. These are all psychotherapies of a kind. Mm. So if, if anyone wants any advice on this, get some kind of clinical training. Um, counseling is probably the shortest route in. You can do a sort of three-year basic counseling course. You know, learn, the, um, learn and understand and experience what it's like sitting in a room with a person in that one-to-one psycho, um, clinical relationship. And then you add psychedelics. To just say, I want to be a psychedelic therapist because I like psychedelics. I don't think, that, in my opinion, that's enough. I think you, you, you need to be a psychotherapist at heart. And there's many ways to be a psychotherapist or a clinician at heart. Then you add the psychedelics later.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like wanting to be a porn star and a millionaire because you like money and sex. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or wanting to be a car mechanic because you like driving fast, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a better analogy. <laughs> hey Ben, I really appreciate your time today. This has been deeply uh revelatory for me. I'm going to listen to this episode myself again often. I I struggle hearing my own voice, but I think there's a lot of uh a, a lot of wisdom I can glean from this conversation where I I feel like information coming in and like I'm I've even starting to have insights coming from our talk today. Mm-hmm. So I really want to appreciate you for having the courage to take this crazy route when you didn't know, uh, where this was going. Mm-hmm. And, uh, your, I watched your Ted talk, the YouTube Ted talk. You could see that on YouTube. Just type in Ben Sessa, uh, uh, MDMA and that'll pop up. It's like 19 minutes long. I watched that over and over and over again, trying to gain the courage to take uh, MDMA. And then once I gained the courage trying to find a way to get the MDMA and a way to find the psychiatrist, because I had to get them. Again, I was one of these people that had a lot of, through a lot of suffering, I ended up with a lot of privilege, I guess, in the sense that I had the resources, the mental resource to even put all that together. Uh, The resourcefulness of finding MDMA, the resourcefulness to go get it tested, and then finding a psychiatrist uh, all of which came by an act of grace in some way. Cause, uh, given my background, I shouldn't have been able to figure this out, but here I am nonetheless a different person in transform today because of your video that yeah. began that, uh, began that process. And I really want to thank you for that.
1: Those very kind words. That means a lot to me. And you know, it's, it's, it's been lovely chatting to you and Madeline today. And, um, yeah, it's, I just, I just love this subject because I love my patients and, I, I think these medicines are so important and we've got to get them out there and we've got to get them available and accessible to people because um, they can do an awful lot of good.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, really excited to see where this goes in the next few years. Yeah. And thank you so much for your efforts. Thank you, you for the effect. opportunity yeah. to meet you both. Yes.
1: How do
0: people connect with you at all? Do you have a Facebook page, any books, um, any workshops? Or are you taking clients, patients?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of ironically, yesterday I took myself off all social media and shut down my website <laughs> oh, wow. um, because I'm, uh, I'm on, the, on the cusp of doing something really, really exciting. We're about to open uh, the world's first complete psychedelic clinic. Um,
2: wow.
1: And um, we're going to be offering ketamine therapy. We'll have an MDMA MDMA and psilocybin when they come on we're going to be offering MDMA and psilocybin uh, therapist training um we'll, we're going to have a cannabis dispensary so we've got all of this and it's about to open and we're going to launch it in the next few weeks but Ooh. uh I just kind of wanted to come off all social media for the time being until we do that so at the moment I'm kind of a bit stealthy to get hold of um but you can uh you can Email me, uh, Ben at mandala therapy.co.uk. Um, so that's M A N D A L A therapy, mandala therapy.co.uk. Um, that's pretty much the only, um, way in at the moment, but, uh, we're going to, once we launch this new project, then, um, I'll be a lot more visible. Maybe so we'll exciting. do
0: a follow-up podcast or something once it's all launched <laughs> and you you have something to talk about with how yeah, that, that experience that is. is. And uh, is that going to be in the UK, this clinic? Yeah,
1: that's going to be here in Bristol, yeah. Wow.
0: So great that's that it's good. not in some country surrounded by guerrilla warfare and all that, which generally <laughs> these things have.
2: Yeah. That's exciting.
0: Yeah, it's cool.
2: Yeah, so we'll stay posted on that. How will we find out about that when it's launched?
1: We'll yeah. Probably- um, I,
0: I I mean I'll be back on Facebook and Twitter then. So. Okay. Uh,
2: yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Great. great. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it. Have a great evening.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, take it easy, guys. Thank you so much for listening, and please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing. Building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.